Okay, so it's Tuesday, and we are going, is it Tuesday? It is Tuesday. Yes, so we're going to do 1 Corinthians. Yeah, I was, t- <laughs> I was talking with Mona before class about what, what I'm doing on Mondays. On Mondays, I'm doing the book of Numbers. And the shocking thing is, we're all enjoying it. I mean, I, I, I don't know why I decided to do the book of Numbers, but... I was, I was always curious about what was in it because the pages of my Bible were pretty much all stuck together when it came to the book of Numbers. Um, true story. Yeah, sure. So, um, but wow, there's a lot of stuff in there. And uh, we, had, we had 70 people online yesterday just streaming because it, it's streaming only. There's no in-person on Monday afternoons. It's just patting me sitting in. It's almost like it was COVID again or something. Just, just sitting in my office and broadcasting out. So, is there anything you would like to talk about today before we get started? Yes, sir. For any of you that are new to Texas, this new weather like this isn't finished. Winter will come again. Yes, that's what we fear. But you didn't need to give voice to that, you know, Pat. (laughs) Anything? All right. Well, let's plunge back into the book of Acts then. So here's where we are. You know where we are. We are in chapter 2 of the book of Acts. It is Pentecost. Every time Pentecost Sunday rolls around, which is always in the late spring, early summer, whenever it rolls around, it is... um, the kids celebrate, you know, the birthday of the church and so forth because that is, this is this day that Jesus had the disciples slash apostles go to Jerusalem and wait for. The arrival of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who will dwell in them and empower them and strengthen them and give them great boldness and be able to be, the Holy Spirit is the one who is pushing forward the mission to be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The, the disciples are not simply left to their own devices, their own talents, their own gifts. The Holy Spirit arrives on Pentecost to empower them to do this work. Same way God does not leave us alone. We're going to talk about this in just a little bit, okay? Um, so open your Bibles to... I have to show my iPad my face, if you know what I mean. So we're, I'm going to go back a few verses just because I like to get the whole context in, okay? So we're in chapter 2, and I'm at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, Pentecost being about six weeks or so after Jesus' death and resurrection, it's one of the three major festivals in Judaism. It's an early harvest festival. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together, they, the apostles, disciples, all the believers, 120 is the count in chapter 1, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now that wind is what's called a theophany, T 
T-H-E-O-P-H-A-N-Y, a theophany, actually an easy word, theophany. It is, it is a theophany is a manifest, manifestation of God's presence. Because God doesn't have a body, right? So how does God help us to grasp that God is with us in a special way? Well, in these, in these times, given the importance of what is happening, God might show up in a cloud at Mount Sinai. In this case, the violent wind is a theophany, a manifestation that, of, of God's presence. And the Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. So that sounds like a, the blowing of a violent wind. In verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. That's about where we stopped last week, I think. So let's talk about this other tongues business. There are two ways that the New Testament <laughs> speaks of tongues, okay? There is the tongue speaking you might have encountered in the course of your religious journey if you had been to a charismatic church that believed in um, this, uh, in tongue speaking and, for example, grace, church down at Preston and Parker is that kind of church. If you were to visit there, there would be people who would stand up and speak in this unintelligible language. Okay, that is what we typically think of, we think of tongue speaking. And I will just tell you, so I think that the Methodist church did a great job of saying to the church, okay, if you believe in tongue speaking, don't see yourself as spiritually superior to those who do not. And if you don't believe in tongue speaking, don't um, think that those who do believe in it are crazy or disrespect them or something. We, because there are Christians, there are charismatic, that's kind of the word, there are charismatic Roman Catholic churches where they speak in tongues. But that, my friends, is not what we're talking about here. The tongue speaking Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians is that unintelligible language, which is why Paul says somebody has to be available to interpret it or it can't help anybody because they have no clue what you're saying. This is different. This is merely a whole bunch of different languages. As if I were going to stand up here today and speak to you in Russian or Turkish, or Japanese, or any of the other 7,000 languages I don't know. That's what's happening. That's what's happening. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is God enabling them to do this. So, verse 5. Now there were staying in Jerusalem... God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because it's just like, it's just like a cacophony of sound. Imagine that it's all these people in a room 
you know, like this, and everybody's standing up, and they're sitting, and they're talking in all these different languages, and it's like, wow, 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 wow. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one had heard their own language being spoken. Imagine, regardless of where you're from in the Roman Empire, right, in the eastern end of the Mediterranean more than likely, you could be from Rome, you could be from Alexandria, you could be from any one of the communities in Asia Minor, you could be from Arabia, you could be from, per it doesn't matter. Every one of these God-fearing Jews who are gathered in Pentecost, gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost, hear their own language spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Now Galilee is in the north, right? It's, it's, it's several days walk north of Jerusalem. For the city people, it's the sticks, right? Galileans are rural, they fish. <laughs> you know, you like the fish, but you know, yeah, they fish. They're just, they're, they're just kinda, they're just kinda rustic. Rustic, that's a good word. And in the ancient world, the division between urban and rural is immense. Immense. The urban world and the rural, rural world. <laughs> Say that three times. It's immense. It, there is a divide in our world. But the divide in their world was huge. Very few people could cross that divide from one to the other. So they're saying, God, these are just Galileans. They, they can't know these languages. Nobody there can speak what I hear them speaking. Utterly, back to verse 7, utterly amazed, the crowd says, aren't all these who are speaking Galilean? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native tongue, our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, parens, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Well, let me tell you a few things it means. God's mission, the Missio Dei, the mission of God, is to reconcile all of humanity to God. Genesis 12, 3, all the families will be blessed through you. Jesus, book of Acts, be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Jesus, Matthew 28, go out to all nations. Baptize them, teach them to obey. Make disciples, go, 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 go. to reconcile a broken, separated humanity into one people for whom God will be their people and, and they, um, God, they will be God's people and God will be their God, okay? 
one, one, one. So now what's happening? It's all together in this oneness, transcending, transcending all the different languages that we have, right? There's this oneness in the room. They're all hearing what? They're not hearing about sports or anything. They're hearing the good news proclaimed. They're hearing the wonders of God proclaimed in their own language from people who couldn't possibly speak it. Wow, wow. Now let me give you another angle on this. When in the Bible did languages, this dispersion of languages, come about? The Tower of Babel, right? It is between what, what we refer to as the fall, the rebellion in the garden, and God coming to Abraham. After Noah, still before Abraham, they, they build the Tower of Babel. And they build it tall because, of course, they want to walk where God walks, but God has told them to be fruitful and multiply, and they are stewards of the whole earth, but they don't want to do it. It's kind of like, it's kind of like a club that doesn't want to be split up or have to go out. So they aren't willing to do what God has told them to do. So God smashes the tower, gives them all different languages, and off they go. Now, this is what? This is the undoing of the Tower of Babel. It's very, very symbolic. It's a very powerful moment. Um, God doesn't want us to be separated. God doesn't want us to divide ourselves into categories. All our various identities separate from one another where we are suspicious of somebody who isn't like us. We are to be one. Paul writes to the Galatians, in Christ Jesus we are all one. There is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. What does he mean? He means that all of the separation and all of the divisions that we hold on to so tightly are washed away in God's work. It's powerful, powerful. It's, it's, um, and, and it's God doing this. Notice that the references to the Holy Spirit in this, right? This is the Holy Spirit, God's empowering presence. This is God's work. Just as God smashed the Tower of Babel, God is the one who is behind what's happening this day, empowering them, enabling them to speak these languages that none of them know. So the whole world, figuratively, is hearing the good news, despite, it's like a, it's like a universal translator that's happening there in that room. It's, it, it's astounding. This is the birth of the church. This is the arrival of the Spirit. Um, before we go on to the last verse, when God leads the Israelites out of Egypt across the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, God gives them their two big two big themes at the foot of Mount Sinai. One is the giving of the law. 
because God's people are given the Ten Commandments. The other one is the giving of the instructions for building a home for God, a dwelling place called the tabernacle. Because God is going to dwell with these people, these Israelites, in a way that God does not dwell with anybody else. And the very last scene in the book of Exodus is where, you know, there's sort of this cloud that is the manifestation of God's presence settles over the tabernacle and fills it up so much that Moses can't even get in the door. It's a marvelous, marvelous scene. So God's dwelling place with these people is the tabernacle and then later the temple. But about 600 years, roughly, before Jesus, Ezekiel has a vision of God rising up out of the temple, the Spirit of God rising up out of the temple and heading to Babylonia. Because that's where a lot of God's people are sent when the Babylonians overrun the city and knock down the walls and destroy the temple. Now the question is, and this is something you could get a lot of New, Scot New Testament scholars all arguing about. How does Paul, in particular, understand the Spirit's return? When they build a temple in Jerusalem, um, and then Herod improves it and builds this big thing, is that, is that really the Spirit of, is this the Spirit of God returned then in the same way that God had dwelt in that temple before the Babylonians destroyed the Temple of Solomon? Paul seems to think no. Because for Paul, what happens here is that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, God's presence, God, does return, but instead of inhabiting a set of dwelling in a um, marble structure, limestone structure, now it's going to be the church. And not only is it going to be the church, it is going to be the individual believers. No longer halls of marble and limestone. Now God's habitation, God's dwelling place, is even within the church. So let's look at two, two sort of fundamental passages in saying this in Paul. Turn first to 1 Corinthians 3.16. Okay, so Patty tells me, this is for the street people streaming, that the internet from the church seems to be cutting in and out, and there's nothing we can do about that. Yeah, hopefully it'll come back nice and clean here quickly. If not, this will be podcasted by the end of the day. Okay, 1 Corinthians, what did I say? 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Okay. Now, this requires a, a moment of teaching, okay, that I really enjoy, so you have to tolerate me. Okay. In English, we have the word Y-O-U. You. And it can be used two ways. It can be used in the singular, 
I know I have English teachers in here, right? It can be used in the singular and it can be used in the plural, correct? My English teacher friends? Yes, of course. And what is that to a normal person? Terribly confusing. So what have we created as people who don't want to be confused? We take the Y-O-U plural and turn it into what? Y'all. Use guys. All depends on the part of country you come from. Use guys, all y'all, use. Right, we create these other words because we don't like to be confused. <laughs> right? That's the craziness of this pronoun obsession lately where they want to use plural pronouns to refer to single people. Well, that's fine, but it's just confusing. Don't do it. So here we go. So if the, the, these, the Y-O-U's right here are plural, and Greek has built into it a Y-O-U singular and a y'all plural. <laughs> it does. There's a singular and there's a plural. We don't have an English. Wish we did. So here's what Paul writes. Don't you know that y'all, that y'all, plural, don't you know that all y'all? <laughs> Don't you know that all y'all are God's what? Temple. Whoa. You see? That's revolutionary. Not a temple of, or a tabernacle of cloth or a temple of, of limestone. It is the church. And the all y'all are whom? The church, the believers, as a corporate entity, the church with a capital C. Every Sunday when we say the Apostles' Creed, we stand up and talk about the Holy Catholic Church, right? And for years, people, everybody wants, Catholic merely means universal. And I saw, so I've lobbied and lost that we change the way we say it to the Holy Universal Church. Because it's not, Roman Catholic is just one part of the church now. has been that way for a thousand years. More than a thousand years. But um, there's a universal church that encompasses all denominations. Protestant, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Syrian Orthodox. Even Baptists. <laughs> right? We're all part of the body of Christ. Now you, you don't, we're all part of the body of Christ. That's what Paul is talking about. Don't you know that, what is it? All y'all? See, I, I go, I make it shorter. I just use y'all, but I'll, I'll go with all y'all. Don't you know that all y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit God's Spirit, this is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Who, not the Holy What, not the Holy It, the Holy Who. And that God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God's empowering presence dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, as in what? The church. So he's writing here about those who would seek to undermine the church. Don't do it. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred. And y'all together, see now he has, 
it's a little more explicit, right? Y'all together, all y'all together are that temple. Very clear, this isn't a point that uh, theologians have agonized over. It's just too clear what Paul means. And it, it's a perfect fit with what happens in Pentecost. They are all gathered. They are the beginnings, these 120 people. And the Holy Spirit comes, God comes and fills them and moves them and enables them to speak the good news in every language of anybody who is around. So now turn, in, still in 1 Corinthians, to 6.19. Still 1 Corinthians. Now Paul is writing here about personal integrity and that what you do with your body matters because in Corinth there are a lot of Christians who have got this idea incorrect idea that it's all about the spiritual stuff baby it's all about the spiritual stuff and I can do anything with this little body that I want to I mean if I want to hop in the sack with my with my dad's wife hopefully not also the person's mother that's that's first Corinthians 5 by the way I didn't make that I didn't make this up if I want to hop in the sack with my dad's wife, I can take, what's this is my body? I can, what's that? That's like nothing. It's all about the spirit. So Paul then says, verse 19, don't you know that your bodies, soma in the Greek, like yes, like the underwear store. <laughs> the ladies know what I'm talking about. Do you not know that your bodies, soma, soma is a word that encompasses our whole being. Don't you know that your bodies are temples? There's that word again. Temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you. And here the Y-O-U is not plural, it is singular. So you could read it this way if you would like. Do you, I'm going to use my friend Pat. Do you, Pat, not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, Pat, whom you receive from God? It's singular that not only does the Spirit dwell in the church collective, but in every individual believer. And we are the ones for whom this is true. If you are not a believer, it's not true of you. It's only the believers. It's only the church. It's not humanity writ large. When you come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit then dwells in you. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. I love this line. This last part is, whew, you could preach a lot on this last line. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. What price do you think he's talking about? The death of Jesus the crucifixion of Jesus, the suffering of Christ. You were bought at a price. 
There's nothing cheap about it. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies, with your whole selves. This is not a call to run out to 24-hour fitness. It's been read that way by some people, but that, that's not right. Your whole selves. If you're going to proclaim to have your faith in Jesus, then mean it. And honor God with every part of yourself. There's no part of yourself that is left out of this. So, all of this is happening on Pentecost. Wow. So go back to Pentecost. Okay, so we're going, um, i got to find it on my iPad, so I'm kind of slow with this. Acts chapter 2, verse something or other, verse 6, 5, 4, 3. Okay, verse 12, that'll work. Acts chapter 2, verse 12. He's listed all the languages, and everybody's hearing this, and it's like amazed and perplexed. They ask one another, what does this mean? What does it mean that this is happening? Then... Some, however, made fun of them and said, ah, they've just had too much wine. Now, on the surface, is that not a ridiculous comment? I mean, really, if everybody was standing up speaking what would seem to be unintelligible gibberish, maybe. But that's not what's happening. They're speaking all these different languages. And that's why Luke lists all these different languages there, right? So what, you know, when people are confronted with something they don't understand, they almost inevitably feel like they have to explain it. And so they come up with this explanation. It's ridiculous, as explanations go, but it is one. It is one. Perhaps they've had too much wine. Well, anyway, so let me pause here and see what questions, if any, I have generated about the Holy Spirit, about the temples, about Pentecost. This is a big moment in, hu big moment in human history. Oh, wait. Big moment in human history, right? Yes, it is. We don't often think of it that way because we want to think, oh, we're on the forefront of human history. No, we're not. The biggest moments in human history happened almost 2,000 years ago. So, what you got, Patty? What I got is, I can remember hearing, um, you know, in my past, that the temple had to be rebuilt again before Jesus would come. And I know that's something, I just checked it to be sure, it's something that the Latter-day Saints still believe, but I know that they don't take our Bible like we take our Bible. That they, they have their own, their own specialized own. version, yes. yes. Um, but I do remember hearing that. I don't know if I heard it, you know, growing up Catholic, Catholic school. Not you didn't hear it growing up Catholic. You might have heard it at Word of Faith. That's where up by where you yes, heard it. Okay. I think that's where. Probably it was. so. So Pat, what Patty's talking to me about is that she has heard in the past that the mar the limestone temple in Jerusalem had to be rebuilt before Jesus returned. And she was asking me where she heard that. Did she hear her growing up Catholic? No. Um, Patty and her first husband, um, who passed away at 37, for those of you who don't know the story, um, for a while went to Word of Faith Church. And that's where she would have heard that. Because in 
American Christianity, there is this sub subset very focused on prophecy fulfillment. And part of that can focus on the rebuilding of the temple based upon some poor readings of Ezekiel. I think Paul would say to that, did you hear me? The temple's been rebuilt. The church is the temple. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You don't need to wait for some marble temple to be rebuilt. The temple has been rebuilt and the spirit has returned. God has returned to the temple. It's just no longer a temple of marble and limestone. Now it is the church corporate and it is each individual believer. So I think it's poor, poor exegesis. Exegesis is trying to read out from scripture and there you can read scripture well or you can read it poorly like everything else in life. I guess thinking that way you would not really be worried right now that Jesus was going to pop up and show up because the temple's not built. See, and so you would, you, yeah. so Patty's saying, well, you wouldn't be thinking too much that Jesus was going to show up tonight because you'd be waiting for the temple to rebuild. In fact, you might get excited, though, when the state of Israel was created because I was going to create this opportunity then to rebuild the temple because that had to happen before Jesus. <gasps> no. <laughs> no, my friends. You remember when the dean of Baylor Seminary was here? Some of you would have heard him, I think. You know, he said, he said, look, what does Jesus say about his return? It will be like a thief in the night. He even says that he does not know the hour. Right? So do not get hung up on any of that. What, does G what is our response to thinking about, oh, Jesus is going to return, but it's got to be, just be ready. That's the story of the, the parable of the ten virgins. Ten virgins, what's happening to me? of the ten virgins, right? Because five are ready and five are not in that parable. Be ready. Be ready. Live your life. Well, what's that line? I turned away. Honor God with every part of your being every day. You don't have to guess things. Jesus will return when Jesus returns. We pray in the face of the world's brokenness. We pray Maranatha and Aramaic, it means come Lord Jesus. Because you look at some of the things that go on and the brokenness of the world and you pray for Jesus to come. So finally the kingdom of God will be fully manifest. But then you read your scriptures because you're a good Bible reading Christian. And Peter says, ah, you know, a thousand years for us is like a day for the Lord. So just cool your jets. He doesn't say it that way, but it's what he, it, it is what he means. It is what he means. Anything else? Thank you, Patty. That was good. Yes, Kathleen. The New Jerusalem is a way of speaking of the restoration of Jerusalem. And notice that when, when the holy city is described, in what direction is it moving? in Revelation. Directionality always matters. The, it's coming here. 
It's about the renewal and restoration of not only Jerusalem. Jerusalem really represents in that way the city of God, the mountain of God, the world of God. And so the holy city comes here. It's not actually, you're not going to look up and see in space some giant cube. Next time I'll do, I'll do Revelation before too long again. It's been five or six years, but it is a, it is a directionality. It is about the, the new heavens and the new earth here. Um, and so that, that's the best way to understand it. Anything else? Okay, so these are the people, oh, they're all just drunk. Drunk, 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 I say. Verse 14, well, then Peter, just to put this in the right context for Peter, what did Peter do six weeks ago? Exactly the right thought. Deny Jesus three times. Three times. After pledging himself to Jesus, I'll, I'll be there for you. I'll go anything. I'll go through it. You're going to go through Yada, 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 yada. And what happens when he's actually confronted? <sighs> he won't even acknowledge that he knows Jesus. He denies him three times. One, two, three. It's a huge moment. One of the striking things about Mark's Gospel is that Mark's Gospel contains within it Peter's denial of Jesus one, two, three times. Because I am with those um, who believe that the Gospel of Mark is basically Peter's eyewitness testimony. Written down for us by John Mark, um, a Christian we meet in the book of Acts and who seems to have been an associate companion of, of Peter's. And he has heard Peter deliver the testimony many times and that ends up being Mark's, what we call Mark's gospel. And so it's always been striking to me then that Peter, that, that Peter in his own testimony has the denial of Jesus. It's so foundational, it's so fundamental, it's so, oh, what is it? It's so us. You know, I, I've, I've taught a long time and I, I, I know it's easy to look back at the disciples and you kind of well, like, why don't they get it? Why don't they understand? Why don't they do this? When kind of like, you know, if I were there, I would get it. I would do it right. I would. No, no, that's, that's naive. The disciples are with them every day and they still can't really get it. They can't, they, they can't really imagine what God is actually doing in and through Jesus. And they react in the way that we react when confronted with the threat of death and suffering, they turn fearful. So, that same Peter is now going to stand up. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, okay, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Now this is a 
big moment. All those people are there. They're hearing it. They're hearing the good news. They're hearing God's, as um, Peter would write in the second chapter of Peter, you know, we're called by God so we can proclaim God's mighty works to the world. That's what's happening. And Peter says, fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. No, this is... <laughs> don't, give me the, don't give me a 5 o'clock somewhere stuff, okay? That comes from a different era. Oh, no. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. No, no, no. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So before we even go on, I want you to go to the prophet Joel. Just put a bookmark there. Put your little finger back in the book of Acts if you need to. We're going to find the book of Joel. This is something the iPad does pretty well. Um, Okay. So you can drop into Joel almost anywhere. Almost. Let, let's just drop in to chapter 2, verse, the second half of verse 1. It's not Joel. Joel's in your Bible somewhere. I promise you. <laughs> yeah. Do you know... Yeah, it, it, it's hard to find them all. I, I, still, I still have trouble with some of them, and I'm just thumbing around the Bible exactly because I, I haven't memorized the order of them because I just don't want them. Okay, so chapter 2, second part of the first verse. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountain. A large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. And the whole writing of Joel is, is like this. He's talking about the day of the Lord, the day when God's, God will do God's big thing and... It will be cosmic. It will be stupendous. And they don't have movie screens to depict this on. They have words. And so the words are dramatic. Dramatic. Look at verse 10 in Joel chapter 2. Before them the earth shakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord, Yahweh, thunders at the head of his army. 
His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh is great. It is dreadful. What makes it dreadful? What makes what can make it seem Because you're not ready. Because the world is broken and most of the world's brokenness is done by us. That's why. That's why. That's why. You know, humanity is a team sport. There's seven billion of us on the planet now. It is a team sport. If you want to think about it that way. And oh the 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 Old Testament in particular illustrates the depth of our separation from God. And even now, we are still burdened by sin because we live between the times, which I'll talk about in a minute. The day of the Lord is great, Joel writes. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Well, if you... Go back to Acts chapter 2. Start making your way back. Who can endure it? You see, this lies at the heart of Christian theology. Salvation. That if we were standing on our own merits, we could not endure it. Because God is holy and we certainly are not. So how can we endure it? By throwing ourselves upon Jesus. By putting our faith and trust in Him. That's it. It's not complicated. By letting Jesus be our Savior. By letting Jesus be our Rescuer. By letting Jesus be what we are unwilling to be. Or unable to be. Whatever you want to think about it. I don't care. We don't have. We can't do this. So who can endure it? Ah, you see, God's people can. It's it's a little bit like, uh, you know, I, we're I, we're doing numbers. So yesterday uh, on Monday, so yesterday we were doing the story of the bronze snake, which is kind of remote. So there is the people of Trun rebellious for the umpteenth time, and God has sent snakes poisonous snakes and they're biting everybody and people are getting hurt and dying and what are they going to do? So God tells them, okay, take a stick and put a bronze snake on the top and then anybody who looks at it will be saved. So, can the people save themselves? No. God must save them from their own rebellion, from the consequences of their own rebellion. That is the human story writ small in, in eight verses in the book of Numbers, but repeated over and over and over again. So here, in Acts chapter 2, verse 16, Luke writes, and Peter says, no, nobody's drunk. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. 
even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit, my Holy Spirit, the return of God's presence with these people that we just talked about. I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy, they will proclaim. A prophet is somebody, a prophet is not, this is an age-related reference, is not Jean Dixon, if you remember her, or Nostradamus, or crystal wall, or having a crystal wall. A prophet of God is someone who proclaims God and calls the people back to God. That's what the prophets do. That is almost everything that they do. I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and bellows of smoke. You see how stupendous this is? How cosmic this is? The language is written to be like, mind-blowing. It's kind of, it's, a revelation has a lot of this sense to it. Because what the prophet Joel talked about and what has now arrived is indeed the day of the Lord. I'll expand on that in a minute. Verse 20, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And, Peter says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who can endure this? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, who calls upon the name of Jesus, will be saved. Standard, standard Christian understanding of the way things actually are. So the confusing thing, one minute, the confusing thing about this is the sky wasn't falling, the stars and the planets are still up there somewhere, the next day they still have to go out and buy bread and all the rest of it. But, 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 Jesus was resurrected. And the resurrection is the great, the great, undeniable sign that indeed the day of the Lord arrived. In and through Jesus. And Paul says, look, Jesus is the first to be resurrected. The rest of us will follow. We are in the middle of the harvest, yes. But it's one harvest. The day of the Lord arrived in Jesus. So now, in addition to the resurrection, we have Pentecost. Another sign that indeed the day of the Lord arrived. Indeed, the truth that nothing is the same on the other side of Jesus as it was before Jesus. And um, Paul will say, you know, we are the ones upon whom the ends of the ages have met. We live in still in 2023, the age of sin and death is with us and the age of the Spirit is with us. Together, in tension. And they will be together with us until Jesus returns. But if you don't grasp the significance of what happened in Jesus as evidenced by his resurrection, as evidenced by Pentecost, 
you you won't understand most of the Christian faith. You won't understand most of your New Testament. Not really. You might hear it in a call to like be a better person, which is great and good and wonderful, but you won't grasp what God actually accomplished. So, here first. So it says that I will pour out my spirit on all people. So what about the people that don't believe in Jesus? That's going to come, right? Because what are we supposed to do? Yeah, we go. But are the people who don't believe in Jesus still going to have the Holy Spirit? No, no. They have to they have to come to faith in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is will dwell within them. So what are we? What are what are the apostles charged with doing? Tell everyone, carry that out, preach it, take it, preach it, take it, with the goal being what that everybody would call on the name of the Lord and be saved, that everybody would become part of the universal church, spanning the entire, at the entire globe, now that we know there's actually a globe. Yeah. So all people does not mean everybody is Christian. No, it's talking about, it's, all people means what is coming. Okay, because the day of the Lord arrives in Jesus, but is it fully consummated? Is it fully manifest? Has everybody been resurrected? No. So for Joel, he it's those two things are just collapsed into one thing that Joel sees, one thing that Joel apprehends. But with Jesus' resurrection, and yet still the resurrection of no one else. In, take it when Paul's writing 25 years later, Paul grasps that Jesus is the first, the rest will follow. Next, I have some slides that I use to illustrate this. I, maybe I should have brought them today, but I use them a lot. That I'm convinced that when Peter gets up the day after Jesus' resurrection, when he gets up on Monday morning, that he's going to see his grandmother out of the ground because the doctrine was everybody's going to be raised. But they weren't. So what does that mean? Does that mean the whole thing's a big lie? Well, it can't mean that because Jesus was actually resurrected. 500 men and women saw him. It can't mean that. So what does it mean? There's a great harvest. It began with Jesus. The rest of us will follow. But it's, that's one event. And at the end of it, indeed, all people will have put their faith in Jesus. They will trust God or what? Or they will pass into what? Nothingness, I guess? That's Revelation chapters 19 and 20. Was there a hand over here? No? Okay. So it, it's, it's just so wild, isn't it, that you come to these little pieces in the book of Acts and they all connect into this larger story. And if you can't, if you can't do that, if, if, if you haven't spent enough time or put enough effort into learning that larger biblical story and seeing how God works across a span of time, it makes it very hard to make sense of a lot of passages. That's why I said you could, you could become a better reader of Scripture or a poorer reader of Scripture. And you could be oblivious to it all. I don't want to be oblivious to all to it all. I, I, I want to 
I want to embrace Jesus in full technicolor. So, anything else? So Paul, what, so, so what is Peter saying? He's saying, people, it's happening right now in your midst, right in front of your face. This is God's big thing. These people aren't drunk. Look what's happening. God's moving with power and strength. This is God's big day. Then he goes on. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help, let me emphasize, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So just imagine the scene. This is going on and there's been the sound like a violent wind and the tongues of fire and everyone's speaking in these different languages and Peter gets up and he calls on the prophet Joel and everyone's going, they're all confused, I'm sure. And then, Jacuz, I accuse you. Look what you did. God sent you this man, Jesus. You knew him. You saw him. You know that he didn't deserve what he suffered. You, Y-O-U, you did this. You nailed him to a cross. It's so bold. So bold. It's going to get Peter in trouble. Of course it's going to get Peter in trouble. Look what happened to Jesus. But Peter's going to do it. This Galilean fisherman. He couldn't do this without the Holy Spirit empowering him. Couldn't do it. You put him to death, nailing him to the cross. But, you see, it's like your dastardly plan couldn't succeed. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. These are what are called messianic passages from the psalm. That the Jews of Jesus' day, they saw in them something of a sign from God that God would raise up a Messiah from the line of, of, of David. And um, it's important to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that came before. Jesus' perspective about himself is certainly not that he was this one-off thing. Nope, he is the fulfillment of the promises of God and the words of the prophets coming, 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 coming together until finally Jesus is incarnate and comes to the people and they don't listen. 
their leaders lead them away from God rather than toward God. So Peter goes on. David said about him, this is about Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me. Now, does David know that he's writing about Jesus? Does he know Jesus? He's writing a thousand years before Jesus, of course not. But Peter sees in David's Psalms, Jesus. Looking back, reading backward. I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me. You, God, will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your holy ones see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Jesus' resurrection is the proof that in his faithfulness, Jesus overcame sin and death. Sin and death are inextricably linked together. Sin and death. Um, sin being what is not holy, what is not from God, what is not good. Sin and death. And because in the story of the Garden of Eden, they rebel against God. They do the one thing God tells them not to do. Everything falls apart. And what is one consequence of that? God says, if you eat from that tree, you will surely die. And death enters the picture. Because Adam and Eve are banned, banished, banished from the Garden of Eden. They won't get to eat from the tree of life. And so death enters the picture. So Paul writing in, in what letter is it? This is Romans 6. In a famous verse, the wages of sin is death. Jesus died. But the God brought him through death to a life after death, and a life after life after death. And so it is with us. When you, to use Peter's language, when you call upon the name of the Savior, when you throw yourself upon Jesus, when you put your faith in Jesus, death will not hold you. Death will not hold you now or when Jesus returns. Death will not hold you. You know, it should, it's always been a great source of comfort for Christians, right? Um, I have this verse, but I can't place where it comes from. You know, we should not see death the way those do who do not believe. Because we know what comes. We know that death does not hold us. We know that after death, we will be with Christ. We know that one day we will be resurrected and ushered into God's presence. And so, it's why you need to, you should want to understand this, this whole story and this whole of Christian theology. 
Yes, dear. Question online. Yeah. Um, from Linda Rivera. Um, she prefaces it, it might be a silly question, which you would say. Everybody would say that, that and nobody, nobody needs has, to. Three people here right now are thinking the same same, so same question. So Paul was actually persecuting the Jews, but she would like to know. He's persecuting the Christians. Christians, I'm sorry. So, so like at this day at Pentecost, is it possible that Paul would be present and hear what Peter was saying? Is it possible that Paul was present on Pentecost and be amongst the crowd? Well, I guess it's possible. He isn't mentioned. I mean, you know, he could be. Did it, was he changed by it? No. Because he will become like a monster tearing through the Christian church until he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul's, you know, for those who are willing to speculate about ages, and some are, think of Paul and Jesus being about the same age. Right? So Jesus would be, let's say, 33 at this time, early 30s. That's probably Paul. You know, given what happens with his life and the decades that lay ahead and where he seems to be in his life and his education and so forth. It's a way to do it. But there's not a big disparity between Jesus' age and Paul's age. Was that helpful, Patty? That was helpful. That Thumbs was up. Yep. So then Peter goes on. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. He was what? Dead, dead, and dead. <laughs> he was died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. This is the standard messianic promise of many Jews, not, not all, but many Jews of Jesus' day. That one from the line of David would be lifted up as the rightful new king of Israel. And king is a royal term, right? kings were anointed, Messiah simply means anointed one. It's a royal term. Seeing what was to come, he, this is still David, spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes through some of the evidence for the truth of Jesus' resurrection. And understand, everything Christian hinges on the truthfulness of the claim that Jesus was resurrected. It is part, a key part, of what makes Christianity not a philosophical religion, but a, a, a a religion grounded in, in historical claims about things that actually happened, that God actually did, and at the pinnacle of it is Jesus' resurrection. If it happened, you're in the right place. Today at 110, if it didn't happen, you could find something better to do with your time. Yeah, really. Peter says we're all witnesses. 
in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul not only lists the various apostles and himself as having witnessed the resurrected Jesus, but in, the, in a remarkable statement, he says he appeared to 500 men and women. And he writes it about 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So not all, but many of those 500 would still be alive. Go ask them. Let them tell you. We are witnesses, Peter says. Peter, you all out there, some of you saw him. You know this. You know this. Verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God. That is a reference to Jesus' ascension which is how Luke begins this writing. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to my Lord, which in the messianic way of reading this, that's Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. I think it's Psalm 110, if I remember correctly. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Whoa. And everybody's reaction is, well, what shall we do? What are we going to do? So when we come back to together next week, we're going to find out what they do. We're going to find out what happens with the believers. And we're going to find out the reaction to this incredibly bold speech, sermon, delivered by Peter on Pentecost. So, before I close this in prayer, any final questions or things? Okay, let's pray. Gracious Lord, you bless us in the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We know the world is broken. We should know that we don't have it within us to fix it. Never have. Never will. And so we throw ourselves upon Jesus and we put our faith and trust in Him and what He has accomplished, not only for us but for this world. And we await the day when, it's, when your renewal and recreation is fully consummated and this brokenness is swept away. Help us to remember our part now, right now, in the work of the church, to be your witnesses, to feed, to clothe, to obey Jesus, and to honor you in every, with every part of our being. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.